Hi, this is Greg Anderson, and this is the Living in Carver County podcast. It's an insider's conversation with the people who make Carver County the best place to live, work, and raise a family. Um, today, we're going to take kind of a different bent because we're going to kind of talk about something that is sort of happened before all of this growth happened is that Carver County was predominantly an agricultural uh, county. And my guest today um, is got some really interesting perspectives on things because of a group that she's involved with, um, Jill. Zeroth with is from Cologne, but she's also the area director for the Minnesota Dairy Initiative. And Jill, thank you for agreeing to come on and talk with me today. Well, thanks for inviting me. So I like to start off with maybe just you kind of telling people a little bit about yourself. Where'd you grow up? What's your background? And how is it that you became to be involved with uh, MDI? I grew up in Mayer, so I've been a Carver County resident almost all my whole life. Um, my dad was a dairy farmer when I was born and he sold his cows when I was just a couple of years old and we built another house in Mayer and just stayed in that community for forever. Went to school in Mayer, um, took a couple different turns in life, um, went to school to be a legal secretary, did a few other jobs between when I got out of school and what I'm doing now. But for the past 18 years, I've been working for Minnesota Dairy Initiative. Um, which is a really good fit for me because I'm married to a former dairy farmer. My husband is fifth generation on our farm, and we live just north of Waconia. My office is by Cologne, but my, I live near Waconia, and dairy farming has been a huge part of my life for a long time. So like I said, that was a really good fit for me to start working with Minnesota Dairy Initiative because I had a background in dairy, and I'm very passionate about the dairy industry as a whole. So what's the kind of mission, purpose, vision of the MDI? MDI's goal is to work with dairy producers throughout the state of Minnesota, either current dairy producers or people trying to get into dairy farming to help them make smart choices, smart decisions about keeping their farms sustainable, um, moving them to the next generation, and just keeping the Minnesota the dairy industry in Minnesota as healthy as possible. Okay. So we work with dairy producers um, throughout the whole state. I work in a 14-county region. Uh, there are other people like me that have the similar position working in other areas of the state. And so what does that look like? How do you come alongside? And by the way, for people who maybe didn't have an agricultural background, producers mean people who are actually milking cows, right? Right. So we're on yep. the, so the language is the same. So yep. <laughs> those are the good souls that get up at 4.30 in the morning and are out in the barn twice a day, every day, whether they're sick or it's a holiday or it's your birthday or you don't feel like it or whatever, because those cows have right, to right. be milked. <laughs> and it's seven days a week, not five days a week. You don't get weekends off. So yes, it's, it's a or your birthday, and it's or a lifestyle. Yeah. Or allegedly, if you're hungover, no off day. <laughs> <laughs> That's not a good excuse to skip mail games. No. <laughs> no, my dad used to say, want to hoot with the owls? You got to sing with the birds. <laughs> exactly. So, so what does that look like? I mean, how do you come alongside and, you know, what areas do you find that, um, now, is there a size? I'm so sorry. Is there a size kind of uh, a size of operation that sort of fits your model or? Um, cause no, no. We obviously, our program obviously isn't going to be working with somebody like 
I won't mention names, um, very, very, very large um, dairy operations where they have thousands and thousands of cows. With that being said, just in my area, the farms that I work with vary in herd size from 50 cows to 700 cows. I've worked with farms that have as many as 1,400. Um, we aren't particular. We work with anybody that sees a need for having a diagnostic team on their farm. And by diagnostic team, I mean um, our teams consist of people that each dairy farm already works with. So we're going to bring to the table your nutritionist, your vet, your lender, your AI rep, um, people that are already part of your day-to-day -day business, but getting them all there at the same time to have a discussion about things that are going to help you make positive changes on your farm. That's what we're all about, just having those discussions on best ways to move forward to make your farm sustainable and profitable. Okay. There's a there's a lot to unpack there. I want to kind of just back up a little bit and just kind of give sort of a historical perspective because I think, a, you know, large farms, you, you kind of laid out a range, but historically, I mean, you said they start at like 70 cows. Historically, you know, 30, 25, 30 years ago, 70 cows was a pretty significant operation. It was. And so... And now that's considered a small farm. Right. And, and so what what's the primary driver uh, for that? Is it just consolidation? Is it is it urbanization and kids moving off the farms? You know, what what was the what's been from your perspective, what's been the primary shift to that, you know, the, that sort of evolution into these much larger sizes? A number of different things come into play there. Um, for my I'm going to use my husband and me as an example. We we're at that 80 call level a number of years ago. And in 90, 1999, we put up a different facility. We increased our herd size. And at that time, it was all about efficiencies. We were milking in a tight cell barn. We needed to make a change because it was so labor intensive the way we were doing things. So in order for us to make our lives simpler um, and give us the ability to leave the farm once in a great while, we knew we had to make a change. And part of that was driven by the fact that at the time we knew we didn't have any kids that wanted to stay on the farm. So how can we manage this farm with the people that are here and still make it work for us? Um, there are not nearly as many next generation people that are staying on the farm as there were years ago. So dairy farmers are having to be smarter and think a little bit differently about how they're going to keep that dairy operation running. Um, when you think about tie stall barns that were what everybody milked in many years ago, like what my dad would have milked in, it worked for them because it was small. It was what one person could do. Um, but in order to make a living at it, at some point, people have learned that they needed to expand their herds and do things a little bit differently than what they had done in the past. I, can I jump in for a second, just for people who are initiated with what that means? A tie stall farm uh, barn, if I'm clear, is where there's stanchions or something where the animals are in place and the farmer moves from cow to cow, you know, either with a step saver yeah. or a pipeline. And and Correct. so it's kind of your traditional barns that you'd see in the country, the big ones and the cows are all basically in place. They would be fed in place. They'd sleep in place. They'd be milked in place. That's how you're Correct. defining it. Okay. That's, and so the that's evolution of that. old style. Yep. Yep. Um, so the evolution of that was see, like a parlor or something where the cows would come to the milking facility. Correct. Okay. 
just so people right. who never have no idea what we're talking about, I just want to trying to give a little bit of a, a visual picture of that. Yeah. So I'm sorry. Yeah. So keep going. So you you mentioned so they had to in order they had to be these efficiencies to try to scale so that they had a, a more viable business. Was that a function of pricing? Is it just a function of lack of labor? Or what do you think the primary driver was on that? It's very different now than what it was probably 30 years ago. 30 years ago, you know, you could find people to work on the farm. Now there are a lot of challenges to bringing hired labor, hired labor to the farm. And some of those things that you would never think of years ago are like competing salaries. You're competing with the McDonald's, the Culver's, the, you know, the places like that that are going to have a starting wage of $20 an hour or more. Um, high school kids would rather go, maybe rather go flip a burger than work on a farm where you're going to get dirty and smelly. And part of the problem with paying that kind of salary is a lot of times it's not going to, the farm itself won't cash flow if they have to pay their employees or the hired labor as much as what they could make somewhere else. So it's interesting to me in conversations that I have with farms that I work with is they're trying to figure out what can we offer employees that somebody else can't. Um, can, is there uh, an educational aspect we can add to it? Is there, are there other benefits that we can give our employees? Can we give them, you know, a quarter beef? Can we give them, what can we do to incentivize people to come work on a farm instead of working somewhere else? And it's a huge challenge. And as you know, um, there are labor shortages everywhere. So it's not just farmers that can't find hired help. It's, it's everywhere. So it, you have to be very creative in finding ways to get people to come work for you. Are, have you seen in Carver? I mean, I know in central Wisconsin, a number of the larger producers, they have a connection, you know, through, you know, Latin America where they'll have workers that'll come over on a work visa and they're actually putting modular, you know, the old, sh the, the pole sheds that used to house, you know, variety of tractors or planters or whatever. Now they put modular housing inside of the sheds and, you know, they're basically set up like, um, almost looks like camp, you know, you've got like bunk rooms and then common kitchens and gaming areas and large screen TVs and all kinds of things. And so people would come and work for 90 days and then they would go back to, you know, let's say Mexico and then, you know, it, it, to spend money with their, you know, go back with their families and then they would have somebody else that would replace them on, you know, on a quarterly or semi-annual basis. Is that something that you're seeing in Carver County or is it just trying to get, you know, stay in direct competition for labor, you know, within a, a, I don't know, for lack of a better word, homegrown workforce? I don't see a lot of seasonal help or short-term help like that, you know, as far as just a few months at a time. There are farms that I work with that um, do involve themselves in other programs that will bring people in from other countries for maybe a year or two years on a special work visa. Um, there's, there's quite a bit of that. But the short-term stuff, I'm personally not seeing with the farms that I'm working with. And so the HR component, is that one of the MDI services and, you know, helping farmers sort of strategize with that? Is that part of the team or? The team is used any way the farmer wants it to be used. And it kind of depends on the coordinator, which is what I am, a, a program coordinator for my company. Um, it kind of depends on the skills of the coordinator and what the farmer wants that coordinator to do. Um, 
there are really good people at the table that help facilitate those discussions or help give feedback on those discussions. And there are a lot of people that have experience with other farms that have done the similar programming as far as bringing people in from other countries. So that's where that team concept that I work with comes into play. Because even if the nutritionist doesn't have all the answers on something, maybe the vet does, or maybe somebody else at the table does. And maybe what I've learned at a different farm is something I can bring to your farm and explain how this program or this idea has worked someplace else. So it all falls into that team concept discussion and having more than one voice at the table and bringing different ideas, different experiences from other farms to the table that you're sitting at. Okay. Well, why don't we break some of these things down? When you say nutritionist, you're, you're talking about the cows, not the farmer, right? <laughs> right. I'm, you know, a lot of farms that I work with and most farms these days will have a dairy nutritionist that helps plan a feed ration or feed recipe, as you, whatever you want to call it, for how the cows in that farm should be fed. Um, and with the outcome being, that, with the outcome being efficiency or overall productivity or a combination of both, or the end goal is a quality milk product um, production level, component level, and when I say components, I'm talking about the butter, fat, and protein levels in the milk itself. Um, you're not going to be a profitable farm, profitable farm if your cows are only producing 30 pounds of milk a day. I work with a lot of farms that the cows are milking 90 to 100 pounds of milk a day, which those are very, very strong farms. But the nutrition comes into play in that it's the driver for the production level of the cows on a farm. And that's based on the quality of the other feeds and then it, not just the supplements, but the quality of the feeds. And then that level of Correct. production, I mean, you're talking about almost 300% additional production. Is that because of uh, an additional milking cycle or is that because, is that a nutrition component or how, you know, how, what's the differentiator between somebody doing 30 pounds and someone doing 90 pounds? Well, for the most part, anybody that's only doing 30 pounds probably isn't going to be around for very long. Right. Um, and most, well, there's that. <laughs> there's a Darwinistic well, thing there, there too. I get that. But but just in, just so people have an I, idea I of what you're dealing with here, because you're, you know, it's not like right. a, any other manufacturing where it's a machine. You're talking about a live animal. And so. Correct. So that's the part I wanted to drill down into these a little bit, because I just think people don't have an understanding. I, You and I talked offline, you know, when we would bring exchange students out to our family farm and they would be kind of like perplexed, like one kid, why you bring me here? Why you bring me here? And I said, because this food doesn't just magically show up at the grocery store. <laughs> you know, there's a, there's right. a, there's a A, B, C, D, E, F, G before it gets to the store. And so I think right. it's just important to drill down on this. So I, I hope I'm not being too elementary with some of these questions, but I just think, I, I just know in having conversations with people who didn't have a farm background, you know, they just, they just not, not they don't know what they don't know. So forgive me if these right. seem overly simplistic, but. No. So going back to the production level, obviously a cow that is a higher producing cow, if um, you make a comparison between a cow that milks, say, 40 pounds a day and a cow that milks 100 pounds a day, the more milk, the more money. And when you feed that cow, 
the cost of that seed is going to come into play as far as how much money you're going to make off of those pounds of milk. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, but it's not just the cow being bigger. It's about an efficiency too. Right. And so the point, I mean, it's not just give them more feed. I mean, the, 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 the value proposition of a nutritionist isn't just give them more. So they produce more. It's giving them the right amount of, you know, Correct. based on, and, and so what type of testing do they do? I mean, is it blood tests? Is it based on production? Is it their age? Is it some sort of genetic composition? I mean, what are just some of the keys that go into deciding like a nutrient um, combination? One of, well, one of the biggest things would be the quality of the seed that the cow is being fed. So if you have good quality haylage, which is alfalfa that has been chopped, um, if you have good quality corn, if you have good quality corn silage, mixing those things into what is called a total mixed ration is what a lot of farmers are feeding their cows right now, which is a combination of hay, corn, um, either high moisture corn or dry corn, corn silage, and then there are quite often minerals or other vitamins that are added to that mixture to make sure that the cows are getting the best quality feed that they can possibly get. The better quality to the feed, the better performance you're going to get from the cow. Okay. All right. And so moving on now, like with respect to the vet, I'm assuming to use like a sports analogy, it's kind of like the, it's, it, it's like a doctor doing repairs, but also maybe like a trainer in terms of, you know, keeping what essentially is an elite producing mammal in production. Is that a fair analogy or? Somewhat, yes. Um, the vet on the farm plays a couple different roles. Um, one of them just being keeping the cows healthy, um, making sure they aren't sick, making sure all these, if you know, um, maintaining a healthy animal from top to bottom. The other part of it is the reproductive part, um, making sure that the cows are cycling the way they need to be, making sure that the cows are getting bred back in a timely manner. Um, so that, you know, they're ready to have that next calf in a timely manner. You don't want, um, it's really important for a cow to use a timeline of approximately a year from one calving to the next. And obviously there are going to be um, different, you know, ups and downs and, you know, here, give or take here or there on that year timeline. But approximately once a year, you want each cow to be calving back again. So getting that cow bred in a timely manner is really important. And that's not going to happen if the cow isn't healthy. So a lot of farms now, um, and have been for a long time, they've been having the vet out at their farm regularly for a herd health exam or herd health check or herd check, whatever you want to call it. Um, A lot of farms have the vet there weekly or every other week just checking those cows, making sure they, they're healthy after they've calved, making sure they maintain good health, and then making sure that they're cycling and ready to be, ready to be bred back again. Are they breeding on a second heat period typically? or It, all be, it depends on the cow. Um, a lot of farms have what they call a voluntary waiting period, which is a set number of days that they're going to wait before they breed their cow back again. Um, a lot of farms, it, it varies anywhere between 65 and 80 days, kind of pretty average that I'm seeing with the farms that I work with is 70 to 75 days. 
Um, but each herd is a little bit different. Kind of depends on the genetics and whatever works on that farm, but it's, that's kind of an average. Okay. All right. So the seg, so keeping the animals healthy, keeping them in the, in the reproductive health um, in line with a, a yeah. particular a, a, a optimum timeline. Um, just, sure. I, I think there's people that are curious, what's the life expectancy of a, of a high producing cow? How many offspring will they produce um, before they are retired? Typically a cow will calve for the first time at about two years of age. And then it kind of varies from farm to farm. A lot of farms um, will have their cows for probably till they average about six or seven years of age and they'll calve probably once a year between the age of two and whenever they leave the farm. Okay. All right. I didn't know if there was any um, longevity changes since in, in the 40 years that I've been away from farming. So <laughs> it, it really varies by farm. It really varies by farm because some farms are very particular about um, when their cows leave. So some farms aren't going to have any cows over six years of age. Some cows are going to have, some farms are going to have cows that are 10 years old. If they're producing well, if they're healthy and they're still calving on a yearly basis, they're going to stick around a little bit longer. Got it. Okay. And so you mentioned the breeding thing. So, it, you know, part of this wheel that your, your, your team has is AI. And so for people who are uninitiated, do you want to take that one? Explain what AI is. <laughs> AI is artificial insemination. And which is how most farms are handling the repro on their farm, reproduction on their farm. Um, cows that are difficult, to, that don't want to get pregnant, or for some reason they don't, what we call settle, they don't become pregnant after however many breedings there are. Some farms will still use a bowl to clean up. Um, but for the most part, you're going to see artificial insemination on almost every farm you walk onto today. Okay. And, and just maybe just for people who aren't initiated, the, the selective, the selection process, I mean, that's a, a fairly, as I recall, pretty, a fairly intricate, um, it, it's not um, arbitrary about the selections. I mean, it's designed to create not at all. superior offspring. So, you know, are they still doing, they, remember they used to do something called indexing. I mean, is that, is that popular now or is there a different terminology for it? I mean, where you're essentially trying to find bulls that have a genetic predisposition to offspring that would um, uh, compensate for maybe a weakness that the female had with, you know, with respect right. to bone structure yeah. or feet yeah. or that kind of thing. Yeah. Is that still kind of the, the general strategy? Yep. You know, you have a farm that struggles with um, poor legs or poor feet. And so they're going to be looking for bulls that have traits for strong legs, strong feet, um, you, you know, whatever you want, wherever there's a deficiency in the animals that you see, there's definitely a way to address that genetically. So genetics has become a huge part of how farmers are selecting um, how they're breeding their animals back. Another thing that has really come into play over the last, I don't know, however many years is using sex semen and beef semen on their cows. So a lot of times um, 
you know, it used to be using just conventional semen. It was pretty random whether you were going to get a bull or a heifer calf, a boy or a girl calf when the cow calves. Now it has become, there are a lot of farms that do this. They use sex semen, which is only um, heifer sorted semen so that they can ensure that the next calf that this cow is going to have is going to be a female cow or female calf rather. That way you can address growing your herd the way you want it to grow. If you are short on cows, if you want to increase the number of cows, if you have too many cows, you can fix those numbers by using sex semen. And it, it's really interesting to see how farms are using it now um, because a lot of farms that have end up with too many heifers, too many female calves, they're also addressing it by um, using beef semen so that if you have an older cow or she doesn't breed back easily, they're going to use beef semen, which will sometimes help that cow settle easier. And then you don't end up with that heifer calf that you don't need. Um, it seems like we've ended up with some farms having too many heifers, too many female animals on their farm. And the vet and the farmer working together seems to have ensured that most farms have healthier herds now. So the longevity of a cow seems to be a little bit more than what it used to be. And there are a number of farms that are ending up with more animals than what they need because the cows are staying healthier longer. They're staying in the herd a little bit longer. So then what do we do with these extra animals that we've brought onto the farm? And some farmers have chosen to address that by using beef semen and having um, or sorted male semen so that they end up with bull calves or beef calves that can be so old, somebody that's raising just beef animals for market. And then those animals don't ever come into the milking herd. Sure. And and, and, and for people uninitiated in, in the dairy world, um, females are productive, males are a byproduct for the most yeah. part. I mean, the idea that yeah. the idea that some random male animal would then be converted into breeding stock is really just like from a percentage standpoint, probably less than 1% of a probability just because um, the animals that go into breed stock are so valuable because of the genetic predisposition towards these superior breed attributes. And so Correct. when she's saying beef, you're, when you're saying beef, you're essentially saying they're going to eat them. <laughs> Correct. Yes. Yes. <laughs> they're not coming into the milking herd. <laughs> they're one that, yeah, they're not, they're not able animals. to be milked and they're not going to be breeding. So they have really no useful purpose no. other than as, as you know, uh, being consumed. Is that a fair way Correct. to summarize that? It is. Okay. And, and so you have to so, realize that some of those beef animals are also female. So not all of those beef animals are going to be male, but they're also going to be animals that will be raised for slaughter for food consumption. Right. And so just, I mean, not to get too far down, but the, the, the success ratio of sex determination on a percentage basis is that, I mean, has that gotten to the point where that's like really foolproof or is there a, is it, a, is it based on, a, is it a probability or is it, are you literally affecting the DNA in such a way that it assures that these are going to be a female if that's what's desired or a male if that's what's desired? 
Because I've not it's, heard of this before. It's not, so It's not 100% foolproof, but um, the percentages are very high that you're going to get. If, if you're using sorted sex semen, whether it be male or female, the chances are very, very good that you're going to get what you're expecting. Wow. That's amazing. I, I had never heard of that before. So, cause that, but you know, growing up, I mean, I mean, I grew up in the late seventies and the early eighties and I was doing AI, which is you, YouTube. But if you want to know what it's about, what it is, <laughs> I couldn't describe <laughs> it. <laughs> but, but at that point, I mean, even the late seventies, we were breeding cows with bulls that had been dead for 20 years. You know, I mean, we were breeding elevation, yeah. we were breeding, you know, elevation stock and he'd been dead for, I mean, he died in the sixties. So, I mean, this is, this technology has been around for a long time. Um, it has. And so, I, I mean, I'm just fascinated by the idea of sex determination because that was one of the things, if you were spending a thousand dollars for a, a, you know, some semen from a particular bull and you had a 50, 50 shot of whether it was going to be a male or a female. And if it was a male, it was like, right, right bad, so sad, you know? Right, right. Not to mention the other genetic variables about whether or not they're going to have the ideal breed confirmation or disposition or, you know, proclivity towards production or whatever. So it sounds like that's evolved, like, like all um, science, I suppose, has evolved a lot, you know, continues to evolve year after year. But um, that's really amazing. So you said, um, and so some of the other, the, the, and I'm assuming the business management is kind of the all-inclusive, but when you talk about extension education, um, you know, what's that role um, with respect to the team? You know, what is it that they are bringing in? Is it a, is it a broader knowledge? Is it a, is it a knowledge about the marketplace? Is it, uh, you know, soil science and crop productivity? I mean, what's, what's that, what's the value add that that team member brings to the, to the table? It depends on um, who that extension person is. There's a dairy specialist in University of Minnesota Extension System that I have on a number of my teams just because he's done the information that he brings to the table is all research based. So if you want to know um, anything about a dairy cow, he's the person that I would bring to the table to tell you what you need to know. Um, there are also crop specialists. There are people in extension that can bring a lot of different perspectives to the table. Um, the, the few people that I work with the most from extension just have general, very good dairy knowledge. One person in particular also has a lot of knowledge about robot facilities. Um, and that's a whole nother conversation about robotic milkers. Um, but he has a lot of information based on research that he and others have done on uh, what's the best system to go with as far as robot milking. Um, just a lot of general knowledge about dairy and he brings a really good voice to the table. I want to come back and talk about robots. And I want to talk about that under the, well, you and I talked offline about, you know, I mentioned the, um, uh, the uh, dairy science days in Wisconsin and the, I was just like flabbergasted at the cost of combine. So I want to come back and talk about that when we talk a little bit more about the economics. Um, but you, you mentioned the crop consultant. 
um, and the, the role of the extension specialist with the crop consultant. What are, you know, with given the high cost of land, we also talked off land, offline about some land that was just recently auctioned. In fact, it was an, it actually made an NPR news um, segment where they were talking about the unbelievable land costs of some tillable acreage in Northern Iowa about a month ago. Um, what are some of the, the challenges or how are farmers doing it? Are they, you know, the, the acquisition of land being so expensive, the, you know, the equipment to harvest the land, the uh, quality of the production, the quality of the food and with respect to how that ties into the nutritional component. Um, and, and then of course you've got the overlay of, of, of a conservational, you know, the conservationalists and the, you know, uh, uh, right of ways, you know, uh, erosion uh, prevention right of ways and things like that. How are, how are people balancing that right now? I mean, what are the, what are kind of the, what are the key things that you're coaching your uh, members on in terms of just that whole food supply chain um, for the animals? There are a lot of thoughts that you just drew into that question. Yeah, I'm sorry. That so was. I'm going to kind of. I'll come back to that. We'll come back. Let's <laughs> come back. Let's let's have the cost one aside. Let's just talk. My daughter will kill me if we don't talk about the the uh, sustainability aspect of of the land. And my niece, I think I mentioned, she's a, in soil science. So let's maybe talk yeah. about that, and then how that lays into the nutrition component, and and then go, we'll go from there. Sorry, that other one was okay. a little too big. So. So one of the things that a lot of people don't understand is that farmers are very, very good stewards of the land. So anytime a consumer is going to tell, it says, makes the comment about farmers are not taking care of the land or they're wrecking the land or whatever, that is so far from the truth because they're only hurting themselves if they don't take care of it. So a lot of the practices that have come into play in recent years or maybe even not so recent years regarding no-till practices, um, bringing a crop consultant to the table to talk about how can I keep this soil healthy? How can I get the best possible yield and best possible feed or crop off of this field? Those are all huge things for dairy farmers. So they're going to do what's best for that land, regardless of what anybody else says. The practices that they use are going to be what's best for that land because that helps them improve their livelihood and you know make all sorts of improvements on their farm as far as feeding their animals or crop yields for any cash crops that they may have. So a lot of that um, is oftentimes not perceived correctly by the general public. As far as land costs, um, yeah, they're crazy. They're just crazy. And it's oftentimes hard for farmers to justify, do I buy this land? Do I continue to rent it? If I continue to rent it, is the owner going to sell it to somebody else? Um, how can I make sure that I can continue to farm this land? Um, equipment costs come into play there too as well. Input costs come into play. So any farmland that anybody is farming, there are so many things to consider when before you even put that seed in the ground. Um, as far as equipment goes, equipment has become so expensive. And you look at some of the things that are being proposed right now as far as going to all electric tractors or whatever, which doesn't make sense at all for a farmer because how do you get through harvest if you have to stop every so many hours to recharge your tractor or whatever? Um, the high tech 
aspect of tractors and combines and whatever equipment these days is just unbelievable. Things that tractors can do now that nobody would have ever dreamt of years ago. Um, Such as? The GPS, you know, the auto steer, so many different things that you would have never imagined were possible or now possible. With that also comes the challenge of maintaining those pieces of equipment. You know, it's, it's a huge cost to buy them, but then maintaining them is another piece. And a lot of it is a challenge because of the diagnostics of figuring out if something breaks down. It's not like it used to be where a farmer can just look under, basically look under the hood, see the problem, fix it. Because oftentimes it takes somebody else to diagnose what the problem is with all the computer equipment in there. It's challenged, much more challenging now for farmers to maintain their or repair their own equipment. They always maintain, but it's more challenging to repair. So costs from one, one end of the spectrum to the other are just so much different than what they had been before. And when you compare those input costs and those equipment costs and um, look at what the milk price is compared to where it was years ago, the milk price hasn't changed a whole lot. I was going to say, let's, let's come back to milk and equipment costs have. Let's come back to milk prices in a minute. But you, you talk, when you talk about input costs, just to be clear, you're talking about what the the cost of seed, the cost of fertilizer, the cost of yes. labor to plant is that part of, is that considered an input cost or what are you how are you defining that? Cost would be um, well, there are a lot of costs associated with getting a crop in the ground. You know, a lot of people work with a crop consultant now to help them determine what to plant where. The cost of seed is a huge part of that. Um, the chemicals, the fertilizer, whatever you put on that ground is another cost. The fuel for the planting, um, the time for doing the planting, there are just so many costs involved in that. And you look at just fuel, for example, what's happened with fuel costs in the last couple of years. It's, yeah, it's, it's a challenge. Mm-hmm. I, you know, and this is maybe a little bit, you, you talked about the cost, we were, you were getting into like milk prices and the cost of, of, of crops and things, you know, to what extent is that market driven and what, ex- I mean, cause you guys, it, it strikes me that you're playing in kind of a, in a, in a game that's not like easy, that's not equally balanced. It's not a supply demand game because you've got people that are speculating about the value of the finished product from a, as a commodity, as a, as something that's traded with investors. And so things come in and out of favor that have really, that can have profound impact on the, 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 the cost or the, or the, the ultimate profit uh, in theory. I mean, if you're feed, if you're a dairy farmer and you're growing crops and you're feeding it, it's the cost of the milk is where you finally get revenue. But if you're growing crops and you're selling the crops, the value of that finished product is based sometimes by market forces that have nothing to do with supply with your with the basic supply and demand that's happening in a local market is that fair correct yes that's fair so i mean that's kind of the reason for subsidies right is to try to try to sort of smooth out those ebbs and flows in terms of 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 the demand and the supply ratios correct yes okay that's correct all right. So all of those things, I would assume then that become part of the crop consultant's job is, you know, where they think prices are going to be. Like, should I grow soybeans or should I grow corn or should I grow, you know, should we take a year off and grow sugar beets or something? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, 
you know, crop consultants will come in and talk about, you know, what are your options as far as a cover crop when you take off um, some, a crop, you know, take off a crop of wheat in the spring, what should I plant there instead? Or um, what are good cover crops that I can use uh, for feeding for my heifers or whatever, a lot of different things like that. But um, it's, it's a kind of a fine line between what the farmer needs to feed their animals as far as cash crops, what they're going to have after they have enough feed, after harvest is done, what do I have left that I can cash crop? Um, so many different things come into play and the, the crop consultant is really a, a, a good piece to have there because he's going to be able to um, work with you on helping determine what your yields are going to be, what's a good plant, what's something good to plant this year that, or where's a better place to plant this than where you did last year? What, how can we um, make sure we're doing good crop rotation, things like that. It sounds like, you know, and I, and I hope what we're trying to demonstrate here, at least what what's occurred to me is that this isn't, you know, farming like your grandpa, you know, was where you had some guy who, you know, maybe dropped out of high school and was able to take over the family farm. You're talking about a, a, a very fluid manufacturing operation with incredible cost variables, um, all kinds of environmental overlays. You know, there's emphases with respect to, um, you know, living creatures and producing a product and things. And that this has become a very sophisticated uh, type of business in addition, not even mentioning the fact that, you know, some of the giant threats that you have are these, the farms that are outside the scope, you know, these, these entities rather, they're really not almost like farms. They just happen to be these massive corporations that are, you know, getting into this business. And so that affects, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a whole different ball game. I mean, is that. It is, it really is. It's so different from what it used to be. And, um, the survival of your farm is going to be very dependent on how well you manage it. Um, there's so much more involved in running a farm than what there used to be. It's interesting to see different management styles and what's successful and what isn't. All right. So if I'm some, I'm not, I'm too old to be a yuppie, but if I'm some yuppie that moves into Carver County from, you know, from out of state um, and I, you know, build a house in, you know, the Western part of Victoria. Why should I care about this? Why, why is this important? Um, do you care about where your food comes from? Do you want to eat? Um, it's interesting. There, there's uh, someone from the House of Representatives that is somewhat local here. And he often tells a story about how somebody that, he works with down at the state capitol has driven out through Carver County and west of here and saw all this open farmland and um, just big open spaces where you could have houses. And when Jim met with her afterwards, she said, Jim, you've got a lot of under undeveloped land in your territory, in your area. What a waste. You could be building this, that, and the other thing there. What a waste to have all of that empty land. And he just made the comment to her, that's farmland. You need that. You need farms. That's where your food comes from. 
And there are so many people that have the misconception that food comes from the grocery store. Well, where do you think that food starts from to get to the grocery store? Um, it's interesting when people move into an area like Harbor County where it, there are areas like Chaska and Shanhassen that are very well populated. And then you get out to further western parts of Carver County where there is a lot of open space, a lot of open farmland. And um, I don't think people always understand what that is. And I also don't think they understand when they move in next door to a farm that there are going to be um, things they haven't thought about living next to a farm. As <laughs> Noises as, and smells. and <laughs> Right, right, right. So it, it's pretty interesting to see like small towns like Mayer and um, New Germany and, you know, different little towns in Carver County that have really grown over the last couple decades that used to always be considered farming communities. And now you look at the number of people that are living in those communities and it's changed drastically. And um, there aren't the farms that there used to be. So it's just kind of given a completely different demographic to the county. Yeah. And, and the other and thing- there's still, go ahead. Oh. No, I was just going to say the other thing that like we talked about offline is regardless of where you are on sort of an ideological um, perspective, you know, if you're libertarian or you're pro-business or you're environmental, you know, the, the urban expansion increases costs, right? If you if your food has to come from further distances away, it's more expensive. So if you're just purely about the economics, there's a there's a there's a value to having uh, closer proximity to food. If you're concerned about the environment, there's an obviously there's less print, there's less transportation in getting foods back and forth. If you care about nutrition, you know there's a a loss of of value. The more the further things have to loss of nutritional value, um, freshness, all of those things. It tastes better if it's closer if you're closer to the source. You know all of those things right. have an impact, and I think um, there's a tendency for a lot of people to sort of miss that. If, if you were just going to give kind of a, a summary of where you think a, 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 your, your sort of portion of agricultural is, you know, whether it's in respect to these giant, I mean, I, and I, the other thing is uh, and just as a, a little bit of editorializing, <laughs> I guess it's too late for that. Maybe a lot of editorializing where, um, <laughs> you know, are you comfortable with all of the food in the world being controlled by Nesty or Cargill or um, you know, ADM or, you know, some of these large, large, large entities, um, you know, how do you feel about that? And uh, so maybe just speak to Jill, if you would, you know, where you sort of see, you know, are you optimistic? Are you cautiously, are you pessimistic? I mean, where, what do you, what's your view of where agricultural is today in 2022 um, in your segment of the market? I am optimistic about the future of agriculture just because technology has improved so much and is improving a lot on a regular basis. It is amazing how much faster and more efficient things can be done. There are so many improvements that have been made in the way everything has been, is being done. So in that respect, I think the future of agriculture is good. Is it going to stay the same? No, I don't see that. Are we going to have um, 12 different companies in the area that offer the same product or the same service? 
um, moving forward, or is it going to be condensed to just a few? Are there going to be buyouts and mergers and whatever? I see that as a strong possibility. Um, I think as far as livestock agriculture, it's more challenging because of activist groups and um, restrictions and regulations and whatever coming from a lot of different sources. Um, it's more challenging, but it also proves that uh, using a, a dairy producer as an example, that he's gonna make sure he just takes that much better care of his animals to make sure that they're well cared for, to make sure that they're healthy, to make sure that they're comfortable. Um, those are all things that really fall into play as far as how the outside world views farming. So I, I'm not gonna be pessimistic about agriculture. I know there are challenges moving forward, but I also know that at some point people are gonna to have to realize that agriculture is a necessity of life. So it's never gonna go away. If people are gonna eat, they're gonna need farmers. Yep. My daughter got this for me. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. No farms, no food. Don Stewart. <laughs> yeah, and people have just farmers have gotten so much better at how they do things. It's just amazing to me to see the progression of farming. Terrific. Is there anything else that you want to end with with respect to that you wish people coming in Carver County knew? You kind of alluded to it when you move next to a farm. There's things maybe you weren't expecting. But is there anything, you know, given the fact that our audience is pretty um, narrow with respect? I mean, it's a this is a pretty micro targeted podcast. You know, it's basically Carver County is kind of our, um, you know, that's the stretch of our audience. Is there anything that you wish people knew that they didn't know? Um, I guess just the general understanding of where food comes from, um, going back to that, no, it just doesn't come from the store, but there are a lot of different types of agriculture or farm products. You know, you have vegetable farmers and fruit and um, livestock and crop and everything imaginable. And I don't think people realize that the oranges that they buy or the apples that they buy come from a farm. Uh, I, I think it's, there's a very narrow perspective of what farming and what agriculture are. So to me, I really see a need for better education of, the, of consumers as far as where their food comes from. Um, and then I just want to reiterate how important it is to farmers that they take care of their land and their animals. That is just such a huge thing and it's such an important part of their lives. And I don't think people understand that, that farmers aren't gonna do well, they're not gonna survive if they don't care for the land and the animals. So um, I think it would be helpful if people could alleviate their fears of animal mis misuse and um, poor, poor soil health and not taking care of the land because farmers are very good stewards of their land. Okay. Well, I think honestly, Jill, that farmers um, are lucky to have a good advocate in you. I think you 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 present really well, and you make a good case for um, um, uh, you know the value of of the smaller farms going forward. So, and I really appreciate you taking the time to be on the show. I know you had a little bit of trepidation up front, and thanks to uh, Addie and and Joel Landscreener for tipping you over on this. But I had a good time. I hope you did. <laughs> I did too. Thank you so much. It was a lot of fun. All right. Thanks again. I'm going to stop recording here right now, but um, you did awesome. Thanks.